0: Hello, and welcome to episode four four, four of German Street Theatre's podcast, Prompt Corner. Today we're going to be talking about sound and music, and we have Matt Eaton, Max Pappenheim, Yvonne Gilbert, and Tom Atwood, all who've done work for German Street Theatre in the past. So, enjoy the episode. So, welcome to Prompt Corner. Um, If you'd all like to go round and maybe introduce yourself, should we start with you, Matt?
1: Certainly. um, It's Matt Eaton. I'm a composer and sound designer um, with an interest in sound art. Uh, That's it, really, for the purposes of this podcast. Right. (laughs) How about you, Yvonne?
2: Uh, I'm a sound designer uh, and with a previous history of mixing Western musicals. So, although I do do plays too. Musicals
3: is kind of really the the base of uh, what I do, of what I like to do. Nice. And Max? Um, hello, um, I'm Max Pappenheim. I'm a sound designer and composer uh, with a background in uh, music. So I came uh, slightly sideways into sound design uh, through the music side. Perfect. And last but
4: not least, Tom. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm Tom Atwood. Uh, it's sort of like, it's again, it's sort of like a mixed bag. and But most things in the mixed bag include some sort of noise. Um, uh, so so uh, music, um, uh, arrangements of musicals for actor musicians is sort of is sort of my uh, main focus. Um, and then occasionally composition for plays and sound design for plays as well.
0: Brilliant. So we're all coming from very like different, varied backgrounds, but all kind of pooling together, I suppose, having a common interest in designing sound and music for theater, I suppose.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and maybe a first question I would love to ask you all is, what is the importance of sound within theatre? What what do you think? What purpose does it serve? <laughs>
1: Start with the big one. Uh, well, it, it's just it's it's another language, isn't it? It's, it's it's the it's one of the other languages that's not text and not stage and not lights. You know, often neglected. It was neglected up until the uh, somebody else might be, correct, be up until the 1940s 50s um, now it's not
4: I, th- I think what makes um uh, sound uh, interesting in theatre is that um, when you when you, we're all, it's a shared experience so we're all ostensibly experiencing the same product but everything we see we see because we choose to look at it Whereas what we hear sort of slightly bypasses that, um, uh, and I suppose that I, th- I suppose that's what makes sound and, and music so powerful uh, uh, as an element and sort of unique as an element in that in the, in the, it's not it's not a choice for each uh, uh, spectator to 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 open their ears to this particular bit of noise. It um, it's it's sent at them and they can't opt out
0: sure. So in that way it's a very universal experience that kind of is completely necessary to theatre if we're talking about it with sensation and with the idea of like how you feel. Yeah
2: it's a useful tool to set the mood without you know to kind of sneak that in on the audience without them without being hopefully too obvious about it so they can you can you know pre-set up the mood of the next scene with the theme change, or you know, it's a useful way to segue between the mood or the the story that has been told in a previous scene and make that transition smoother or or more abrupt if that's what you and the director have have, have, uh, chosen to do. But I agree with Tom that, you know, it's such a, if done well, it's something that the audience aren't necessarily aware of. So, um, you know, you can make them feel something without them knowing why they're feeling it. And very much in collaboration with the set and uh, the lighting design, absolutely.
0: Mm. And so in that sense, that, that's really interesting. You talk about it with the words like to try and sneak it in or to try and be an experience that is definitely part of the whole, but doesn't necessarily enforce itself in the same way that a set might do visually for people. Um, and so how does that affect your process? Perhaps Max, you could talk a little bit about that. How does that affect the way you kind of approach sound design?
3: Well, I, I think the, the other thing about sound um, is that because the text of the play, and indeed so much of what the actors are doing and so much of their training uh, is obviously based around the human voice and about the audience hearing um, that voice, both hearing it clearly when we want it to be clear and hearing it unclearly when we want it to be unclear. Um, but also about the tone of the voice and the way that the actors are communicating with each other and and with us, what we're meant to hear, what we're meant to overhear and so on. And so we spend an awful lot of time um, actually working on um, the the fundamentals um, like that as well. Um, so it's a, it's a funny role in, in the same way that lighting designers work both with um, making pictures that are emotionally, dramatically communicative, but also making sure the audience can see the actors' faces. We mm. spend an awful lot of time making sure, um, often in a hidden and subtle way that sometimes doesn't even feel like it should uh, be part of a sound designer's remit, but just making sure that the, the sounds uh, can be heard in the right kind of way. Mm.
0: Definitely. So does that mean that you come to the process What's your starting point, I suppose is what, is what I mean to ask. Where do, you, where do you start with? Do you start with preconceptions about a text because you might have been told things about it or you've read the, the, the text particularly? Um, because th- that's really interesting, Max, that you talk about the way that it interacts with the human voice on the stage. So presumably it's a multi-layered, multi staged process, which develops as you, as you go through it, depending on the different amounts of interaction you have with the other facets of theatre.
3: Yeah, it tends to, um, uh, it tends to vary, um, as all things in design, um, in all kinds of design, do, But particularly, I think, as a sound designer, my first question about a play is going to be, what's it like? Because in sound, we're constantly dealing with what what it's like, what it feels like, what the style is. Because sound, as Yvonne says, sound has so many different um, uh, ways of contributing and helping and clarifying that. Um, not least because sound does both literal really well because we recognize such and such a sound and it does uh, ambiguous really well was that a scream or was that a screech of some some squeaking metal uh, or a bird or someone laughing this sort of thing so the first questions in any process even sometimes before reading the text at all the first questions often that we'll be interested in will be stylistic ones or emotional ones what's the vibe because with sound we're going to be dealing with a vibe
0: mm. for sure.
3: and that, and that's
0: really interesting you related to association as well so you're playing on a very intimate like emotional psychological level with how people already interact with sound in their daily lives is, is that is, would that be true to say
3: i'd i'd say for sure yeah 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 tom you're nodding enthusiastically
4: yes i was i was i was just thinking that um uh you can't hear me nodding this is I mean, <laughs> in, the, in the world of so i can't hear you nodding on this podcast um but i suppose what the uh um we, we tend to think of we have we have quite clear ideas in our head preconceived ideas about what something sounds like which is nearly often nearly always very different to what something actually sounds like and so it's so that so part of what i think max is discussing there is for for the purposes of this play, of this story, what is that interface between what we think something sounds like and what something actually sounds like? That's that's often, um, but again, I suppose it's just how, what am I going to do to augment the story? I I think Mm -hmm. that's sort of where I would start. It's it's what is is the story we're trying to tell? Why are we trying to tell it? What can I do to augment it?
0: Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Um, and so I thought we might talk a little bit about maybe the history of sound design, because I feel as so, though, I mean, it's changed a lot recently, hasn't it? Has it gone through this, this very kind of drastic change with, with the advance of new technologies that mean that kind of mm. practical sound effects are dealt with in a different way? Would that be true to say?
1: Uh, yes. Well, I, I caught the, um, the end of the minidisc era and the beginning of the computer era. So uh, yes, it has changed. It's changed a lot from um, thunder sheets and rolling cannonballs down tracks, tracks above the audience, which sounds like an incredible thing to do. I think we should go back to that. To be honest,
0: yeah. I was so the that's cannonballs and thunder sheets.
1: Pra- the practical things.
0: Yeah. So uh, that that obviously appeals in a very different way theatrically as well, because it's, yeah. a, it's a live action, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's a, a part of performance that isn't yeah. necessarily uh, something recorded. So is, is that quite a large? discussion is that quite a large facet of of all your work
1: it's um probably not something that you'd a sound design would bring to a process late on it's something that would have to be there from the from the start yeah quite i'm yeah. quite fond of is live live foley um, the unnatural micing up of a cast for mm. a symbolic symbolic effect or language mm.
0: has that generally waned though
1: throughout Throughout kind of the development of sound design, is that something that people um, are doing less and less? Well, it, it's waned. It's waned in one way that it's, um, uh, I suppose it's like sort of digi- digital technology. It's um, we we sacrifice all of that for convenience, and now some of it is being brought back for artistic purposes.
2: Mm. I just did a season in York last year. of, uh, They rebuilt the Rose Theatre, um, oh, which yes. was all Shakespearean, and we although there were some microphones, um, it yeah. was basically old school Foley as well. I mean, I played I play some cannon fire, we didn't actually have a cannon, no. but apart from that there were, you know, chains being thrown from galleries and things yeah. like that. Mm. So, um, it, which was really good fun and I, I really enjoyed doing it, so yeah. the, I guess it's more of a, in more of a historical context, people still do that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, it's still life only you know i
1: love doing i love doing that well, we can that. do so much with it now can't we because um you know we can process we can process all of this stuff to our heart's content and you can you know change rub, rubbing a carpet into rainfall you know typewriters into rain things like that i was doing that earlier this year um just with um processing those sounds through um through and live.
2: Was, was any of that live matt or was that all yes. um yeah. oh fantastic so yeah. you started with a, a typewriter that. that it you was a,
1: yeah, it, it was an Orlando. She was um. It was the, the narrator, uh, Stroke Virginia Woolf, uh, playing a typewriter, and that's um, processed, put through a, I think even type plugins and the waves and all of that, and um, we turned it turned it into rainfall.
2: You was did that, that with just manipulation, or did you then play rainfall over the top of it, or you did? Just...
1: then we then you crossfade into the crossfaded into real rain.
2: How lovely.
0: But does that form i know that that's an instance of that sort of live foley but does recording um kind of sounds does does that form a large part of your
1: practices um is that something that you still do
0: yeah i've got
1: quite in quite into that actually doing the um doing my own you know for convenience we we will use sound libraries most of the time i would say i mean do um if on max, do correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I use mostly sound libraries because I, you know, obviously we don't have time to go out and record every little bit and bit and bob of a uh, sound. Design, mm-hmm. But I, it's something wonderfully rewarding about making your own, uh, making your own recordings.
3: Hugely, hugely. My um, my partner yeah. gets very upset when we're off on holiday, and um, yeah. I say, "Oh, do you mind if I just if I just those crickets are great or whatever." Brilliant. Three hours later, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those crickets
4: with
0: a Cornwall accent. <laughs> exactly.
2: Well, you, you may joke Tom.
0: <laughs> well, this is an interesting question. Do do you guys find yourself I mean are you are you self-confessed obsessive about sound? Is it something that you think about all the time or are you quite easily able to separate it from the work that you do?
1: Weirdly, I've been using lockdown to try and find a hobby that isn't sound related because <laughs> no, I I my all my if I have time off I'm probably sat in this chair making some music, writing music mm. for myself or other projects, you know, projects which don't pay, um, a, you know, a wage. So mm. no, I don't really have any, I don't really have any hobbies outside of sound and music. It's a broad church though, to be fair.
0: I did want to ask as well, if you guys had any, if you do record um, foley tracks if you what's the what's the strangest sound you've ever recorded
1: oh i've got one for you uh i had a gig in uh florida just before lockdown and I, i've been i've been over there quite a few times at the university of south florida and i have never come face to face with an alligator which are quite common out there so i went looking for alligators i thought this is probably the last time that i'm going to come out for this gig because it's over i saw this out I, I saw an alligator in an in a park left the boardwalk with my little um, Yamaha recorder and um, literally walked past it. I must have been within about six feet of this fairly chunky alligator. And I heard a big splash behind me, basically. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm trying to think what the weirdest thing yeah. I've recorded is. Yeah. I would recorded myself slurping a cup of tea, mm. and I, I, which was for, for some ridiculous thing which needed some heightened nonsense for somebody to and it was and that I remember spending far too much time on that and quite quickly losing the will to live um one of those moments where you're you're going for the fifth take of this slurp of a cup of tea and you think what am I doing (laughs) what am I what am I doing I'm quite quite, I had there was so much potential in my life when (laughs) I was at school and here (laughs) I'm slurping a cup of tea I think that I I suppose on the weirdest on the weirder end of the spectrum.
1: Um, A percussion track from eating an apple. I mean, that's thinking about it. The Beach Boys were forty years ahead of me with that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The
2: the thing I find with sound libraries is that they're often not in. Particularly if you're doing regional theatre in the UK, they're not in the right accent if you want crowd scenes. So um, you have to all that stuff. You you have to record because. Mm. You know, there, there isn't that big call for, you know, a, man, a, a party full of people with Manchester accents or, you know, nobody's going to make a living selling sound libraries doing that. So all that kind of stuff you have to record yourself. And a, a, a Zoom with just a, a 414 attached or something is really very easy and quick to, you know, just to, in the rehearsal and to get the cast to, rec- to help you out and record some mm. extra stuff.
4: Yeah, I suppose that's true. And sometimes the... Um... The, what you would find in a sound library doesn't have the musicality that you need it to have mm. for the scene in which you want to deploy the effect. So it's not that you—it's not that you can't find um, the, the right series of bird calls. It's that the bird calls aren't emotionally mm. as close to what you need them to do for the scene. So that—that's when you start having to sort of remake it um, uh, to, to deliver what yeah. you want.
1: Um, mm. uh, long time it's, funny, it's a long time since i've used real bird song in a play i use this kind of well um for ring modulated reverbed bird song which kind of works as a it works as a sort of universal signifier for bird song if you see what i mean and mm-hmm. i think i find realistic we don't need you know natu- naturalism and realism is yeah. necessary so much
2: you find yourself getting caught up with because I can go down a rabbit hole of seasonally correct bird song Mm -hmm. you know just to try to tap into that thing of you know what says autumn to us and and like we we were talking about earlier about being able to set the scene without saying very much so um, and how, how do you find that works with stuff that you generate or do you just think it's not is it often not something that you think is important in the particular show that you're doing?
1: Um, it depends. It depends on the production, but and it, I'd say you no, know, it, it is important. It's just finding something that signifies that, signifies that, and sounds good. Like Max said, the vibe and the vibe vibe is right. So the, you know, and yeah, I find myself moving away from literal literal depictions. Mm. Time, yeah. Less specifically requested. Hmm.
0: Why? Why? Why is that? What is it? Bec- is it to do with that thing that you, that you mentioned about the fact that what we expect is different from what it actually sounds like?
1: Um, we, it's the artificiality. We're paint, paint. We're kind of painting a picture with sound. Hmm. I think it. it I didn't. Re- I didn't really articulate this until a few years ago. And quite often it's, you know, be, we're sat in a theatre under artificial light. So why, why are we using naturalistic sound? Mm. And there is, there's, there's all, obviously there's always a case for doing this, but it shouldn't be the, uh, it shouldn't be the default, I don't think.
4: And the, and think, yeah, no other element is, nothing is real. No. But there's a level of expression mm. to everything. And I suppose, and I suppose Matt's saying if you, if you, Come crashing in with the, the the realist sound ever. All it's going to do yes. is remind everybody that that set is made of you know, two inch ply.
3: Yeah, it's, that, it, it's
1: that it's that Tom. Yeah.
3: Also, tastes tastes change. Audience tastes are heavily influenced. Um, particularly um, in the last two years, TV and film um, have really changed um, expectations of what sound will will be mm. like and what the what the language is um so a, a lot of the time i mean gunshots for example um my least favorite thing in uh, in theater um because of course what every, what what an audience uh, i i feel that what an audience really wants is something that sounds like it does in the movies um mm. what they don't want is an explosion on stage which is often what a director's keen for 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 particular uh, very specific reasons um and so there's a tightrope to, to walk between the two of what's, what's real, what's realistic, and what an audience will, turn, will take what they need to take from. The gunshots thing
1: is really interesting. I, I always think of it, I, I want to depict how it feels when you hear it, rather than the literal sound, if you see what I mean.
0: Max, you bring up film and TV. Does that have a lot to bear on your work? Do, I, do, 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 do you guys do a lot of work in film or TV? Is it very different to theatre?
3: Um, as a slight aside, one, uh, one thing which I found very instructive was uh, working in uh, radio drama, first of all, um, and um, learning that way about how it is that people listen exactly what what aspect of a sound people home in on Mm. um we had one interesting um moment where we were dealing with an an antique pistol being handled and we we got hold of the actual um an actual pistol or or, or very close to the original model and it just didn't sound like anything so then Mm. we pulled a stapler out of the cupboard and and whacked that around and it sounded exactly like somebody handling a um um, handling a gun uh, presumably because again that's the kind of foley work that's been that people are used to in uh, uh in movies and and tv mm. Mm.
0: so it bears quite a lot on the on the way on the expectations that audiences the audiences have and is that something you learn by doing it again and again by by understanding what is successful theatrically and what people want
2: yeah and what pe- the director's expectations are huge i've had um uh, a show that had uh, a polar bear in it and had a, an animatronic polar bear, well, with people in it. And uh, we had re- a reverse radio in it. And as soon as you play a polar bear sound, uh, people go, that's the, a that's the dinosaur. And it's not a dinosaur, obviously, it's just what they used in Jurassic Park. And it, we ended, I ended up having to ch- change it for something else because the director was so adamant that everybody's just going to think, why is that? Why is there a, a dinosaur? So,
3: yeah,
2: the realism versus expectations is a, is a huge thing.
3: A great gift in theatre is a preview period where we can <laughs> see everything in context and ask ourselves very honestly, um, what, what does this sound like? Is this landing right? Are the audience looking at each other going, what was that? Uh, or are they all <laughs> laughing their heads off because it's Jurassic Park?
2: <laughs> yeah, and they were. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You find that you have to change stuff quite a lot through that preview process.
4: Period. Oh, I, I find that it's literally every every preview is up 5D, DB down 5D. <laughs> a bit louder, oh no, no, that was too loud, a bit quieter. And literally, and then where you add it to start with is fine, is, is, is always fine. What, I mean, I suppose what's, what, the, what makes sets um, sound, again, apart perhaps from some other elements is that you can't do any of it you can't ask everybody to stand still while you adjust it, which I suppose to make the comparison to lighting, you can't just say everybody just stay. We are we're just going mm. to we're just going to do you know it all has to run to time. Mm. So 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 I suppose that's that's where why the preview period is so um, uh, crucial because you you need everybody to start at the beginning and get to the end in order to really get a sense that um, uh, is is this Jurassic Park or those marigolds I've flapped in. <laughs> in the cleaner's <laughs> cupboard um, and recorded on my phone. Have they, have they done for wings, you
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, often actually uh, with a musical, uh, with a band, anything that's got a live band, generally you don't get them until the preview. I mean, you may be very, very lucky and get them at the end, at the right side of the tech or the start of the tech, you might get a sound check so you can have a stab at setting levels over the top of it. But generally you know you get a dress rehearsal with the band that then wipes out every single sound effect level-wise and the previews are the only time you really get to work on it with the band which is you know at any length of a, a run you know you, you don't get to do it to the audience In really you get you get a sound check but,
0: mm. but so the are really speaking about kind of a musical aspect to it um Matt you do a lot little... of of musical work as well don't you do you feel as though your experience in sound design affects the way you play music
3: um
1: it's yes i mean it it does it does it started to feed back in over the past few years actually i've um yeah uh yes it does i'm gonna find it hard to articulate <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i'll give it a go um i've gone back to a lot more uh more of an experimental form, emboldened by my work with um, with just with working with raw sound and using sounds, you know, symbolically. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: does does inverted commas with things? <laughs> um, and also, uh, yes, yeah, st- storytelling and narrative—it's become quite important. I, was, I went off lyrics for a long time, and uh, now I find I, I was thinking only the other day that I. I need some kind of narrative in my life in music, and I can make that with sound, but incorporating text and words and stories into music is what I'm looking at at the moment.
0: So um, Tom, you've got, speaking about music, you've, you've got some experience in doing um, some teaching in actor musicianship, which I suppose leads us back into what we were talking about earlier with that sort of performance and um, sort of thing. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I suppose there's, the, uh, um, yeah, I do,
4: some, I do some teaching on um, on the exposition course at Rose Bruford, and um, obviously now, now we're in the world of of lockdown and online um, lockdown. Mm. Um, it's so depressing. It's such a <laughs> depressing name. Uh, but um, now we're in the, sort of doing online um, classes. We're sort of having to just ad- adjust the modality of, of, the, of the work we're asking them to do. And so much of the exposition work is normally about ensemble and and, uh, and and something sort of connected and spiritual, um, uh, and and now it feels like we're asking them to work separately. And of course, the internet is now awash with um, pit bands, um, choirs, uh, casts doing these. Oh, we put together this recording. We put. To- oh, we just. We all just <laughs> got together and we just made this Zoom, and and we just all got on Zoom and we all started seeing it at the same time. And of course, it's complete nonsense because because it wouldn't work. Um, but because of the latency it just wouldn't work so everyone's had to record their bits separately and so then you suddenly go, oh well if everyone's had to record their bits separately why do they always make such a fuss about wanting to hear each other why do we always make such a fuss about needing to connect and hear each other when actually you've all recorded your bits separately to a to a, a tiny guide track or a tiny click track so so next time you complain that there isn't enough monitoring I'll remind you of how during lockdown you weren't even in the same room and you couldn't hear each other um, and I think with the, that that mini rant over put that there um, I think with the um, with the active musician work I think that's what we're finding interesting is how do you continue to find those those um, uh, uh, holistic connections that you would have if you were actually in a rehearsal room um, whilst using some technology but specifically with with the majority of these active musician students not the, the course isn't a technology course, so may, there might be two or three of them that are really interested in pursuing um, uh, uh, composition or, um, or, or or mixing or or, or something that involves the technology. But most of them want to want to be on the stage um, uh, performing. So so how so how, what is the what is the easiest technology flow to enable us to continue to do the work? I think I think that's what we that's what we found interesting over the last few weeks. It's been a bit of a baptism of fire. Um, mm and of course you're limited by the fact that you can't go around there and just install it on their computer you can't you can't <laughs> there comes a point where you can't help them anymore mm. so you have to
0: come up with a new with a new um uh, uh task mm. so you're talking about the the, the kind of the, the normal situation would be um a- actors who also perform music as well kind of like integrated into the, the soundscape of mm-hmm. a show, right? Um, and so that's an interesting uh, suggestion that the obviously the, the situation that we're in at the moment, which is obviously not ideal for anybody, has kind of hindered that in, in a very kind of real, very um, immediate way. Has that been the case for a lot of you others as well in terms of sound design and, and obviously hindering work, but also the aspect that Tom mentions in terms of the personal kind of real immediate, um, interaction that sound necessitates in a normal situation.
2: I mean, I would say for me, everything, you know, there is no more work. Everything's gone or postponed indefinitely. So, you you know, I've had vague conversations with people that I've worked with before about maybe doing an audio, you know, about maybe doing an audio drama, but that's as far as, as any work discussions have gone, it, you, you know, it, it just dropped off the mat. I'm sure that's the same for for just about anyone in live performance that isn't in a regular kind of, that doesn't have a regular kind of side gig, or, or a teaching gig, or work for an institution. So, um, you know, it's just, it's completely different because there's nothing that mm. the projects are saying they will come back, who knows legally when that will be.
0: Mm. way that we're interacting with each other now maybe more people are like in an amateur sense turning to sound where they might not have done before because it's a, a kind of like a digital way to kind of communicate with each other or there's an interesting relationship there between the kind of the technical aspect of your work and the emotional aspect of your work and maybe that might lead us into a discussion of that like how much do you think normally you have to negotiate that balance between technical and emotional, um, which we've spoken about before. And how has that changed in this new situation?
2: I've, just, I've always seen it as a, a very old-fashioned craft, in a way, although it is very new. And in my head, it's kind of like the stonemason or a carpenter in that you have to learn the practical things before you can be expressive with it. Mm. And that's, that's how I see the technical building blocks, in that... It's easier um, to be expressive adequately or to, in the way that you want to be if you know how to do the technical bits. And that's just the building blocks of being any old school you know, craftsperson, whether that would have been a stonemason or a, a, you know, a sculptor, an artist even, you know, even a, a visual artist. You have to learn the techniques first. And then when that becomes inherent and you don't have to think about that bit anymore, that's when you can really do your job properly. Mm.
3: It's a
1: nice way of putting it. Can I, can I borrow that?
2: Yeah, of course.
1: Thank
4: you. <laughs> I'm going to borrow the thing about turning a typewriter into, into, a, into Ray. Me too. I with, think with I was a asking
2: many questions.
4: <laughs> and I think, yeah, I that's it, isn't it? I, I, cause it's not, cause it's, cause it's art. So it's not, it's not, it's not like being a mechanic, whereas if you're a mechanic, you can learn how all the bits of the car work and therefore you can fix the car. And I suppose what Yvonne's sort of saying is that, is that, the, that that's, that's just the beginning. No, knowing how the bits work is, is, is one half of the, of the equation. And, um, but, that, but, I, but I suppose there is, a, um, there is a, a, an argument that the, the two, because the two things interact, you can come at it from one way or the other you can come at it from, I want to do, I've got an idea. I want to do something. I don't know how to do that. Now I'll go and find out how to do it, which yeah. is, but then, but then, but then your th- then your knowledge is then less, uh, the organization of your knowledge is, is less um, structurally sound, I suppose, but, but who knows? Um, uh, and, and I think with the, um, with the, with the current situation, it's, um, it's, it's interesting to see the necessity with which people are turning to technology but that doesn't necessarily mean that that when when the current situation goes away that they'll continue to want to turn to technology you know we'd all we'd all rather go and have a coffee and talk about this um because a kieran you'd be paying um <laughs> and, at uh,
2: least for the coffee
4: yeah i love coffee. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and, um, and obviously when I say coffee, I mean a beer. Um, but, uh, uh, but we'd all rather do that than this. So there are some things where, you, where, where the, the, the current situation isn't, isn't the best, but it's, it's making the best out of it, I suppose. Mm.
3: Mm. The thing about technology is that um, people use it as best they can. People will do whatever it takes to just get something approaching what they want out of it. And it's very common, particularly, say, in Edinburgh, you might see a production where, as, say, um, from the point of view of uh, whether you were going to grade, how you were going to grade um, uh, someone on their work as a graduating uh, a graduate from a sound design course, you might say, oh, that was dreadful, you know, that the sound effects were all really loud, or uh, <laughs> or whatever it might be. But actually, what you've got, often, is a theatre company who don't have a sound specialist, who have found a laptop and found some sound effects that they downloaded off YouTube or something and, and put it all together and it works, it works brilliantly. And that's, the, I don't mean that in a sort of patronizing, oh, how sweet way, but rather in the fact that right now, Zoom is available, Skype is available, they're not perfect at all. We know that conversations sometimes get a bit jerky as we stop and aren't sure if someone was talking or whatever, but we turn it to whatever use um, we can. Uh, whatever works for us. And the same is true of theatre. The same is true of many, many different things in theatre as well. And that's one of the glorious things about theatre, that because of the the contract between audience and performance, uh, we can accept and get on the same page as whatever it is that we're seeing and hearing, um, which is a slightly different perspective I think, but we're seeing it borne out now. There was quite an interesting conversation on the Association of Sound Designers. I don't know if I shouldn't give this away, um, but there, uh, there was a, a little email chain in which someone said, oh, a, um, um, uh, an actor uh, has got in touch asking for some advice about um, what microphone they should get to do some recordings at home. And um, the discussion that came out of it was, is, is it A worth saying to them look realistically um you can't launch a voiceover career just from buying a microphone and and doing some stuff at home because of x and y and z but b what are the possibilities if we give people a little a few pointers so they don't spend lots of money on the wrong things but what's the best cost benefit if you want to get a microphone so that you can do more things with your voice from home in this situation and those are the kinds of questions that we're often dealing with in sound yeah we don't have any budget for this production but how can we achieve a sound which will be distinctive and that kind of approach, I think, is, is what we, we're seeing lots of at the moment and will continue to. However, circumstances change for theatre and performance. People will find the tools that they have around them and use them as best they can, and interesting things will result.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Prompt Corner. Next week, we'll be back and we'll be talking to some special guests about August Strindberg and the work that we've put on at German Street Theatre of his. Um, so do tune in next week. Don't follow don't follow. I mean, don't forget Do follow us on
3: our social media channels. That would be great. Um, and yeah, see you soon.